Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms, and to Psalm 14, as I have been preaching in the evenings when I have opportunity, I have been working my way through the Psalms, and so I've now done this 14 times. Uh, would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? The word of God, let's give it our attention. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You may be seated. I suppose that uh, many of you will be familiar with the oft-quoted words of the missionary Jim Elliott, who once wrote, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, And if you're not familiar with those words, I'm thankful to be the one to introduce you to them, uh, because they convey some very profound biblical wisdom about the value of things eternal over the value of things that are passing away. Jim Elliott would write those words not long before he would be killed as a martyr to the Alka Indians on the mission field, where he would give, in an ultimate sense, what could not be kept, his own life, for what could not be lost. If you turn that quote around, you might say it this way, he is a fool who would trade the eternal things of the kingdom of God for the things of this age. Something strikes me about that quote of Eliot, and that is that he uses the word fool in a very biblical sense. When Eliot speaks of the fool, he's not making a statement about intelligence, is he? You could not replace his words by saying, he is really intelligent who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. No, he says, he is no fool. And that is because the opposite of being foolish in the Bible is not being smart. It's being wise. And wisdom and foolishness are not so much statements about intelligence as they are about the ability to exercise good and godly judgment, judgment that accords both with God's word 
and with the way that he has designed his world. Sometimes incredibly intelligent people do incredibly foolish things. And sometimes uneducated and simple-minded people live in incredibly wise ways. A person can be both incredibly brilliant and incredibly foolish at the same time. And this is because, according to the Bible, the fool is not first an intellectual category. It is a moral category. So that when we read the opening words of this psalm, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We need to interpret it in that light. And so as we look at this psalm, Psalm 14 this evening, we're going to see the contrast that the psalmist paints for us between the fool on the one hand and the faithful on the other. The confession of the fool and how his confession leads to the corruption of not only his behavior but also his thoughts and how the confession of the faithful brings them comfort, confidence, and cheer in the Lord. And so just these two main points tonight as we sort of work our way through this psalm. First, we'll consider the fool, and secondly, we'll consider the faithful. Our consideration of the fool begins with his confession right at the beginning of the psalm in verse 1. And we'll see how this confession that he makes is linked inseparably to the corruption of his life. Uh, He begins by saying, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, we hear those words, and we might be immediately inclined to think in terms of modern atheistic philosophical arguments. Uh, Maybe it makes you think of someone like Richard Dawkins, some of the angry atheists, maybe your college philosophy professor. Maybe you think of some debate that you saw between an atheist and an apologist online. Those who are making philosophical arguments against the existence of God. And while those sorts of denials of God's existence are not outside the purview of this psalm, it's really not what the psalmist is talking about. I think what the psalmist is talking about is something far more subtle than that and something far more widespread than that. The sort of denial of God in view is not really an academic or a philosophical one, philosophical one as it is a moral one. Uh, we might call this sort of denial of God a term that the Bible uses elsewhere as simply ungodly or godlessness. Uh, The fool is ungodly in the sense that they live their lives, they say in their heart, there is no God, that there is no ultimate standard. There is no final judge. There is no arbiter. There is no one I am accountable to. And so they live as a God unto themselves, and they live as though today is all there is to live for. They take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that there is no God, that confession will translate itself into the way that you live. You will not live as someone who is dependent on God. You will not live with any sense of accountability toward God. And therefore, you will not live with any acknowledgement or reverence or gratitude toward God. Just think of the way that Paul puts it in Romans 1. Though they knew God, they did not acknowledge Him as God or give Him thanks. In this sense, the category of the fool is much broader, isn't it? The fool is one whose life reflects neither confidence nor accountability toward God. This is the real biblical fool. The irony is that often in the world's eyes, such a person may appear wise, as though their life were unfettered by an archaic moral code or eternal concerns. And yet the Bible says it for what it is, they are fools. Not in a pejorative, name-calling sort of way, but simply as a statement of the truth, a truth that gets worked out in the lives of those who make that confession. Do you think a person can say that in their heart, that there is no God without it having a profound effect on their thinking and behavior? Of course not. And it's why the confession of the fool proves itself out in the corruption of the fool. Look at how that naturally progresses in this psalm. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Hear the extent of the corruption. It's seen in their actions and their behavior as they do abominable deeds. As God looks down, he sees none who do good. But the corruption extends beyond their behavior and really behind their behavior to their thinking. There are none who understand. They have no knowledge. The depth of the corruption is what we might call total. Sometimes we refer to this as total depravity or radical corruption, a corruption that extends to every facet of man's being. It runs deep. A corruption uh, from which actions flow out of corrupt thinking, which flows out of a corrupt heart. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And while it would be convenient to sit back and say, yeah, those godless fools, they're just so wicked. You tell them, Pastor. Well, I am telling them. Because according to 
this psalm, no one escapes the scrutiny of this indictment. Who are these fools that the Lord looks down upon from heaven? They are the children of man. As the Hebrew says, they are the children of Adam, of Adam, of mankind. If foolishness is the denial of God by our actions, if foolishness is living as though we were not accountable to God, which one of us can escape this indictment? Isn't that just what sin is? Sin is godlessness. It is lawlessness. It is living as though we were not accountable to God, as though we were a God unto ourselves, as though we were autonomous. And the psalmist says, there is none who does good, not even one. Uh, In the Canons of Dort, uh, which is a 16th century Reformed confession that you'll find in the back of your hymnals, our fathers in the faith put it this way, man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. And that corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all of his descendants. That's also the way that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reads and interprets this psalm. He quotes it extensively in Romans chapter 3 as he is proving his point that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the whole world, Jews or Gentiles, stand condemned and accountable to God. And where does he go to prove this point? But to Psalm 14. So he says, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And it leads to great terror, as verse 5 says, the terror of falling into the hands of a living God whom they deny with their hearts and with their lips. And yet notice also how verses 4 and 5 introduce a distinction among this mass of foolish humanity. That from among this mass of corrupt humanity, there are some whom the Lord calls my people. There are some that the Lord calls the generation of the righteous. Which leads us from a consideration of the fool to a consideration of the faithful. And I think we need to just establish how it is that foolish sons of Adam become faithful sons of God? How is it that they might now be identified as my people? The psalm doesn't elaborate on it. It just sort of assumes the distinction, doesn't it? Fortunately, the Bible is very clear about this elsewhere. The way that foolish and rebellious sons of Adam become faithful sons of God is by being united to Christ by faith, whether looking forward in faith to that coming Messiah or looking back in faith to the Messiah who has come, Christ is presented in the Bible as a new and better Adam 
who represents a new humanity of those who trust in the faithfulness of the promises of God. So that the Apostle Paul uh, will tell us that all of humanity might be considered in just these two men. You might just consider that only two men ever existed in the whole world. The first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam who represented all mankind and all of his descendants who would come from him. And the last Adam, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible also calls the second Adam, as though there were nobody in between. All of humanity might be represented in these two men. So after quoting Psalm 14 and showing us that all mankind are corrupt through sin in Romans 3, in Romans 5, Paul will go on to say that as by one man's disobedience, Adam, all were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, Christ. And that if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the Bible is very clear. The way you move from being considered in Adam to being considered in Christ is through that gift of God's grace. It is through faith in Christ. Calvin so good on the Psalms, puts it very nicely for us like this. He says, David places himself and the small remnant of the godly on one side and puts on the other all of the posterity of Adam, in whom corruption, depravity, exercise dominion. Okay, so there's David puts himself and, and the faithful on one side, and over against them, he puts all of corrupt humanity. Calvin says, Whence it follows that all of us, when we are born, bring with us from our mother's womb this folly and filthiness manifested in the whole life, which David here describes, and that we continue such until God makes us new creatures by his mysterious grace in Christ you become considered in that new Adam through God's mysterious grace, which he works in Christ, making you a new creation, such that you are no longer considered of the old creation, the first Adam, but you are in him a new creation. Think of the way that in this psalm, the wicked are said to shame the plans of the afflicted and to eat up my people like they eat bread. You see that distinction. But then David says, God is with the generation of the righteous, and the Lord is his refuge. Now, in the historical context of this psalm, the generation of the righteous most likely refers to those who have been with David in his trials, that faithful remnant uh, who have not gone with his son Absalom, who have not rebelled, who have not sided with Saul, right, through all of these various trials. They're, they're with him. They've stood by him in his affliction, which, by the way, poor might be better translated here as the afflicted. And the Lord has said not only to be with them, but is also their refuge. 
Those are beautiful words. To remember that the Lord is our refuge. Those are words which will ultimately, of course, find their fulfillment, not simply in King David and his faithful remnant, but in King Jesus, David's greater son. Is God ever more with his people than in the one whose very name means God with us? Is God ever more a refuge for his saints than in the affliction of his servant? Does God ever more confound the wisdom of the world than he does with the foolishness of the cross? And David's prayer at the end of this psalm is finally and fully realized in the coming of that promised heir. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. In the fullness of time, there would come this one who was not a fool. When God looked down upon the sons of Adam, he would finally see one. Those same fathers of the faith and the canons of Dort, when they said that this corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all of his descendants, they made clear the one biblical exception, except for Christ alone. Christ alone, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born of her and yet without sin. So that at last... At last, in all of human history, when God looks down from heaven on the children of mankind, he can find one and say, he's good. Can find one and say, he understands. Can find one who seeks after God. Can find one who does not turn aside. One who is not altogether corrupt. One who did what was good. One and only one. One who will call upon the name of the Lord. One who would not shame the afflicted. One who would not eat up God's people like bread, but rather would himself become like bread for them to feed upon. One better than Adam. One greater than David. One who would subject himself to the terrors of God's wrath in order that he might become, through that subjection, the refuge for sinners. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Did David know what he was praying for? Could David, in his wildest imaginations, have known the way God would answer his prayers? I think his faith could rise to it. But just think of how this prayer is answered. David unlikely, or very likely, has a very objective physical, you know, enemy in mind. And yet when God comes out of Zion to deliver, he doesn't deliver David from just the enemies of his physical life or his kingdom. He destroys the enemies of his soul. He destroys the enemies of the kingdom of God. God's answer to David's prayer for salvation is that answer that our faith still rises to and lays hold of. A faith which the Bible tells us is a stumbling block to the Jews and its foolishness to Gentiles. To give up your life on the mission field, 
That's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. A truer note could not be struck than the note that this psalm ends on. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Beloved in Christ, we have had our fortunes restored. Not only all that was lost in the fall, but so much more than that. All that Adam might have attained unto. All that Christ has attained unto, that eternal reward of heaven itself and of God himself, that is what is secured in the victory of King Jesus. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. We have much to be glad for. And let us then no longer live as fools. Let us not live as though there were no God. Let us not live as though we were not utterly dependent upon God at every moment in whom we live and move and have our being. Let us not live as those who are not accountable to God, but as those whose accounts have been paid in full. Paid in full. Joyfully then, delighting to live for the glory of God and to do His will. Let us not live as those who do not acknowledge him or give him thanks, but as those who offer our whole lives back to him as an offering of gratitude. Because in the end, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let us not be fools. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm and how it reminds us of the foolishness of that confession, the foolishness of living as though you did not exist, the foolishness of pretending that we were not ultimately accountable to you. We know that you have appointed a day in which you will judge the world in righteousness. We know that you will be a terror to those who have denied you. But Lord, we also know that to those who through faith have entrusted themselves to that one son of Adam who was not faithless and not foolish. To them, to us, it will be our rejoicing and salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that then you would help us to live lives filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would not live as fools, but we would live quorum Deo before your face, always looking to Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.